How many of you had a smile on your face as you were singing that song? <laughs> Glory to his name. Our sins are taken care of. They're left at the cross. Our Savior did it all. If that doesn't bring a smile to our face, there's something wrong with us. So, I want you this evening to think about some large project that you've undertaken. I don't care what kind of project it is. It could be a craft project, a construction project, a building project. Maybe it's a large puzzle that you took on, you know, one of those 16,000-piece puzzles or something that you did. Maybe not quite that large. Maybe it's reading a massive book, you know. You didn't think you could read an 800-page. What was Cheryl's book? Providence that she read, that large book. Maybe it was something of that nature. Think about a large, large project that you undertook. Projects like that, they tend to follow a kind of predictable cycle. We start with gusto. We, we dive right in. We're excited. Their dreams are, are made with, of what we'll accomplish, and there's this initial burst of energy, and we dive right in. Investments are made. Materials are purchased. Time and efforts expended. The project's underway. And then the project slows down. Maybe some problems are encountered. You're not quite sure how it's going to turn out in the end. You're, you're not sure what to do at some step. You know, there's something that gives you a question, or, or maybe one piece didn't turn out quite the way you wanted, and you're not sure, okay, do I keep going? Anyway, something happens, and you slow down. They, overall, in your mind, the success of the project begins to have minor doubts. You, you may not admit it, but there's doubts. Will this project ever get done? And your excitement wanes. Your, your energy expenditure decreases. Progress rate diminishes. Sound familiar at all? Anybody ever have a project like that? If not, you've never done anything large. At this point, when we get that place where the project speed diminishes, one of two paths are usually followed. Either one, the project sits for a long time before it's finally just buttoned up and packed away and left unfinished. Any of you have those in your house? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't think the jewels do. They left them all in Brazil. So that's one path. Or two, you, you find some way to renew your initial vision. You, you, you get pushing again towards the goal, and, and you get that vision back, and you start making progress again. And if you manage to follow that second path, eventually excitement grows. The, the closer you get to completion, the, the more and more excited you get. You get to a point where you are confident that you will succeed. You will complete the project. Now, I just described this general flow for large projects that we undertake. The, the question that I want us to ponder this evening as we turn back to Zechariah, how would that pattern change if we knew with absolute certainty that our project cannot fail? What if we're absolutely assured of success? What difference does that make? We're in this middle, it's been a, a few weeks now, but we're in this middle of eight visions that Zechariah received on the night of the 15th of February, 519 B.C. That's a couple years in the past, so 519 B.C. I've given a fuller background of, of what's going on in previous sermon, but let's recall the basics here. For five months, the, the people that came back from the exile of Babylon have been working at the temple rebuilding, but that was after it sat idle for 15 years. It was one of those projects they began with gusto, hit opposition, they set it aside. 
and sat for 15 years. And just recently it got restarted again. Five months have been underway, and they've been working on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. The people have demonstrated their commitment to God as he called them to this project, and God in turn is now demonstrating his commitment to them by giving the people these visions through Zechariah, great, grand, stupendous visions of the future. We've looked at four of the eight so far in our series, and from those four we've learned a, a, a number of major points already. One, God is in aware and control of everything that's happening in the world. The angel of the Lord, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, he made several appearances in the early visions. He is personally involved. God is active in his world. Two, the enemies of Israel will suffer God's wrath because of their rejection of God and their enmity toward Israel. That's guaranteed. The angel of the Lord has assured that he will see to it, that, that judgment comes. Three, Israel remains God's people. Even though they, they endured the exile, they remain God's people, and they can look forward to a day in the future that the God will dwell personally among them again, ensuring their prosperity. Much of what Zechariah remains future, even from our perspective. Zechariah saw this in these visions. It was future all for them, but much of it even is still future for us. It, it waits the millennial kingdom when, when Israel becomes the center of God's program again, when the angel of the Lord will return as the victorious Davidic king, Jesus Christ, and take up the throne on earth. Three weeks ago, we looked at the fourth vision of Zechariah's eventful night, a vision that specifically focused on encouragement for Joshua. Joshua was the high priest at that time, not the Joshua of Joshua the book that we talked about this morning, the conquest of Canaan. No, this is a different Joshua. This is Joshua the high priest in the post-exile time in Jerusalem, the first generation after the exile. And in the fourth vision, God showed a wonderful future. He promised that the nation would would come to this future entirely by grace. God is the one that's at work. He's not abandoned his people because of their sin. Rather, he's committed to once again purifying them. In fact, he's going to purify them by giving them the Messiah as their ultimate blessing. Joshua's ministry as the high priest within the temple that they're building, that, that will serve as a significant step toward that future of the Messiah. Well, our passage this evening, the, the fifth vision that Zechariah receives during the long night, is really a partner with the one we saw three weeks ago. It's unfortunate we split them apart. You know, from Zechariah's perspective, this is one night. It's only a matter of minutes for us. Now we've had three weeks in between. But, but these visions are back to back, and this fifth one partners with the fourth one. As I said, the, the last vision, that fourth vision, encouraged the high priest of Zechariah's day. Well, we'll see as we go through the vision this evening, this one's directed to the other major leader that the people have, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor or the civil leader at that time. He's the leader in Jerusalem over this post-exilic community. So he pairs up with Joshua, leading the people in civil affairs and Joshua in religious affairs. So now we have a vision for Zerubbabel. I'm going to split the vision into three sections this evening. The, the first section, verses 1 through 5, is, is the vision itself, uh, the vision of assurance, I'll call it. Look at verse 1. 
Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me, <coughs> excuse me, as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with this bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Now, that first verse there is, is rather unusual. Uh, Zechariah here receives this verse, and it's somewhat unusual because all of these eight visions are part of the same night. The angel, this interpreting angel, he's been speaking with Zechariah off and on throughout these visions. And we're told something about he has to return now and rouse Zechariah. I'm pretty sure Zechariah is not taking a nap between visions. I, I just can't imagine that. Um, at least not physically taking a nap. I, I really don't know what has happened to him here, but uh, apparently the astonishment of the grand future that he was just shown... You may not remember, but Joshua was shown this grand future of the millennial state, this time of, of wonderful time that's coming for Israel's future. So maybe the astonishment there of that promised future causes Zechariah to fall into some sort of a static stupor. Maybe he's just kind of spiritual overload at this point. At any rate, the interpreting angel goes over and, and basically shakes him of the idea, or gets his attention, draws his attention back to to what's happening now, not what he's still remembering in his mind. When the angel asks Zechariah what he sees, Zechariah describes this golden lampstand in verse 2. And from what I read this week, we probably should think of this more like the kinds of lampstands that archaeology has found very um, prevalent in this era than the lamp that was in the tabernacle or the temple. We're, we're familiar with the Pictures, I'm sure you've all seen pictures of the tabernacle and the temples, the menorah that is kind of fan-shaped, has seven candles, one in the middle, three on each side, you know, a fan-shaped lamp of some kind. Well, lamps at this time, most of them, however, were just cylindrical columns. You can think of it like a pedestal that had a little flare at the top to hold a bowl, and a bowl would sit on it. That was a lampstand, just basically a bowl holder. And that's probably more what we should think about because sitting on top of this lampstand is a large golden bowl. That's what we're told here. Zechariah sees this stand that holds a bowl. It's a very large bowl. And then this bowl has seven smaller bowls placed around it. So you have a large bowl in the center and then you have seven bowls around it, not fanned out in a fan shape, but wrapping around it somehow, either attached directly to the rim of the large bowl or... More likely, there's some sort of a stem that, that connects them to the bowl in, in this lamp here. Each of the smaller bowls have seven spouts. Lamps of that time basically were a bowl with a spout of some kind. You almost can think of a little bit, if you're trying to envision your mind, think a little bit, a little bit like a teapot without a lid. You know, you have a spout and they just stuck the wick down the spout. And the oil would be down in the the, the bowl and down the spout, you put a wick and you light it. Well, this, these bowls had seven spouts, so they could hold seven wicks. So each of the smaller bowls had seven wicks, and there's seven bowls around the, 
the, the, the large bowl. So if you use old math, maybe not new math, but if you use old math, you end up with 49 wicks altogether that would be there. In other words, this would be a bright light. That's what is being symbolized here or being displayed. Think of it maybe as a lamp system. It's no longer uh, just a single lamp, but a lamp system, kind of almost like a, a chandelabra maybe sitting on a pedestal, something of that nature you can think of. One thing that surprises me a bit is that Zechariah doesn't ask more about this complex lamp system. It's rather complex, it's rather bright, it's certainly the middle of the vision. It's supposed to symbolize something, surely the, the seven sevens, you know, seven is the, the number of completeness throughout the Old Testament. We have seven sevens, seven bowls with seven spouts. That, that must be significant, right? Well, numerous suggestions have been made over the centuries. If you start reading commentaries, you get all kinds of suggestions, but there's nothing in the text. The, the most likely image that I read is that lamp system is just being pictured as, as I said, a very bright lamp system. There's lots of light here. So it's indicating that Israel will once again serve as God's bright light to the world. That was what Israel was supposed to be as the nation. They were supposed to be his beacon to the world of, uh, of, of him. Yet the reality is that Zechariah simply moves on to what else he sees. He, the lamps are in the center of this magnificent thing, and he doesn't focus on that. He, he moves along. We're, we're left with nothing more than speculation then and questions regarding what does that system symbolize? Zechariah turns his focus to these two large trees, two olive trees that are standing on each side of the lamp, at least from his perspective, you know, there's one on left and one on right from where he's standing in out front. Now, we assume that these trees will provide fuel for the lamp system since olive oil is the, the primary fuel that's used in lamps in this era. However, that's not stated at this point in the text. It will come up later, but at this point, we, we're left with the assumption. Instead of, of focusing on how the trees provide oil, Zechariah immediately asked the angel, what are these? referring to the trees. And here, at least in my mind, is where we encounter another surprising thing in the vision. Zechariah doesn't get an immediate answer from the angel to his question. Instead, at least the way I read verse 5, the angel seems to imply that Zechariah should already know what, what these trees indicate. Do you not know what they are? Ouch, I would think that would hurt a little bit when the implication is, you should already know this. Come on, dude. That, that's a, at least my loose paraphrase. I'm not sure if it's right, but I would think it could sting a little bit, though. At any rate, Zechariah is kind of failing to discern the obvious is, is the implication, and he has to admit he does not know. No, my Lord, I do not know what these trees are. Once more, in, instead of answering Zechariah's question, Regarding the identity of tree, the angel takes, um, what was that term that Ben Everson kept using? Um, oh yeah, an excursion. Well, we're taking an excursion here. The angel takes an excursion. Zachariah says, what are these trees? The angel says, don't you know, dude? No, I don't. Well, let's talk about something else. The angel takes an excursion and gives Zachariah an oracle, a, a prophetic statement in verses 6 through 10. We have what well, I'm calling the words of assurance. Then he, that would be the angel, said to me, 
This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. One commentator calls verse 6 the, the key verse to the entire passage. And it really is, but first, it doesn't seem like it. Zechariah is given here some direct words from the Lord, from Yahweh, the, the covenant God of, of Israel. Direct words to give to Zerubbabel. This is, is God's message to Zerubbabel. Remember, that's the civil leader, the, the governor, essentially, of the people. Zerubbabel is the one who had led the exiles back from Babylon uh, t- for the purpose of rebuilding the temple 15 years ago. He was the one that gathered them up and led them there. And now he's still the one leading them in a civil capacity. So these prophetic words that Zechariah are receiving are for him. So what's the message that, that God's sending to Zerubbabel through Zechariah? Simply, it's really a divine assurance that the rebuilding project will finish successfully. Look at verse 9. Ezra chapter 3 records a celebration that, that occurred at the time the, the foundation of the temple was laid. That was 15 years earlier, 15 years and five months, really. It, but 15 years and passed, in Ezra chapter 3, the people arrived, they, they set up enough home where they could survive in Jerusalem, and they laid the foundation with a large celebration. Zerubbabel is specifically mentioned in, in Ezra 3 as aiding Joshua, the high priest, they, they appointed Levites who oversaw the work and, and led the celebration. They set the foundation. So clearly Zerubbabel was a key participant in the initial celebration. And here we're told um, in verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house. So he's pointing back there. Those same hands are going to be involved in a new celebration. He's going to be a key participant in something that's akin to that groundbreaking ceremony that, that they had 15 years ago. Think about that message for Zerubbabel. That first celebration was 15 years ago. He has endured those 15 years. He's watched the energy for the rebuilding project wane, and then he saw it grind to a stop. These same people are the ones that started up the project now again. The same people that gave up 15 years ago are the ones that are now working at it. Would history repeat itself? Would these people give up again? Well, God's given Zerubbabel a direct answer to that question. No, they will not. Zerubbabel, the the same man who began the work, will see it finished. In fact, verses 7 and and 10 both picture Zerubbabel as as setting the final stone, the capstone, as part of this great second celebration. Um, Mike mentioned last Sunday evening on the one church that we went down to build that Pastor Albright set the final stone on the walls. It wasn't quite the capstone because they don't have a roof yet. 
This capstone is the final stone for the, for the temple. The project would be done done when the stone is laid. I had a boss that when someone would come tell me, finished a project, his question would be, are you done? Are you done done? Because so often with done, there's still some more things that need to be done. So this is done done. It is finished, the capstone. Zerubbabel will be doing that. Now verse 10 is another one of these hard to translate verses. One of the key words is uncertain in its Hebrew as to what its exact meaning is. So depending on your translation, verse 10, you either have Zerubbabel holding a plumb line, making sure he sets the stone straight, or he's holding the, the, the stone itself that he's setting. It's hard to translate that word. But in either case, what's being pictured is, is the same thing as verse 7, the final event where the, the temple is finished. God is telling Zerubbabel here in no uncertain terms that he will see this project finished. In fact, he will be part of a great joy-filled celebration of the completion. There's going to be shouts of grace, grace to it. They'll sound forth as that final stone is laid, expressing a desire for God's gracious blessing to rest on this finished temple. By the way, there, there has been much debate over the, the centuries as to what the seven who will be glad in, in verse 10 are. When you look at verse 10, you've got seven who will be glad, and then at the end of the verse, that's combined with eyes of the Lord that range to and fro throughout the earth. There's a lot of debate on that. What do, what's that talking about? Well, for what's worth, I, I personally think, and whenever I say I personally, that means you're welcome to hold it as loosely as you want. But from my study, I personally think the, the best explanation is that there's a connection here between verse 10 and verse 9 of chapter 3 of the previous vision. Remember, these are parallel visions. Um, one to Joshua the high priest, one to Zerubbabel the, the civil leader, both ensuring success, in, success for the current project. I think there's a link here. In, in the previous vision, there was a stone that had seven eyes, and that, that stone clearly pointed to the Messiah. I think the image that Zechariah is seeing now in this fifth vision is that of the same stone, that, that stone with seven eyes that points to the Messiah is also serving here as the capstone of the new temple. In other words, the, the temple will serve the, the coming Messiah by pointing to him, by, by displaying to the nation and the peoples of the world the, the need for a Messiah. The, the finished temple will serve to, to further the messianic expectations of the nation. So then I, I take the eyes, there's the reminder that, that God is omniscient. He's the one that's all-knowing what is, is occurring on the earth. He is watching to and fro. He's, he's watching from his temple, his place of manifesting himself in a unique way on the earth. What is happening? It's a vision of, to, to communicate that truth. The, the words that Zerubbabel will see the project finished would be sufficient, I'm sure, to re-energize Zerubbabel as, as well I would think Zechariah would be energized passing them along. Yet I've skipped over some even more stupendous promises that are embedded in the verse. God is, is not giving a message to essentially tell Zerubbabel to, to strap on your big boy pants and get back to work. It, that's not the message. It's not this you can do it, rah-rah type message. No, look, look at the promise that God makes in verse 6. Not by might, 
nor by power, but by my spirit. Zerubbabel will not have to motivate the people to keep working. God is going to personally provide the energy, the strength to finish the project. In fact, God says any obstacle that Zerubbabel may encounter, no matter how mountainous it may look like, it may appear as if this is a huge insurmountable obstacle, God's Spirit's just going to flatten it out so it's like a plane. It's going to be removed completely by the power of God. They will find major problems becoming as easy to overcome as traveling across flat plains. Why? Because God's Spirit is doing the work, not the people. The people are swinging the hammer, but God is doing the work. The people are simply channels through which God's Spirit works. The power to get the job done is divine. Nothing can hinder it. The task will complete. Nothing can stop it. That's the message. Now, there are two theological aspects to these verses that I want to briefly comment on. These are excursions within the excursion, if you will. So we're getting looping out there a little ways. First, this is one of the clearer Old Testament texts that, that suggests that, that the Godhead is composed of more than one person. God talks about my spirit. When we read our New Testament knowledge back into this, we, we can understand that God the Father is promising that God the Spirit will personally ensure the completion of the project. At the same time, we need to recognize that, that without the New Testament, it is far less likely that Zechariah or Zerubbabel or the people of Israel would read verse 6 that way. They wouldn't recognize that this is saying that the Godhead has multiple persons. It, it took the New Testament and ultimately took the, the entrance into creation of God the Son to give us a clear demonstration that God was more than one person. Because you have the Son praying to the Father, both God, and then he promised to send his Spirit. The New Testament clarifies that the Godhead is his Father, Son, and Spirit. So there's no problem in spotting the implication in our, our text here, but we also need to recognize the limitations the original audience had. They would not have seen that when they first received this message. In fact, spotting such implications in the Old Testament, like this should give us one more reason to rejoice that, that we now live on the other side of the cross. We can look back and see this implication that, that was there but hidden from them. So that's one theological detour. A second theological uh, excursion here is if comes up if we look at the end of verse 9. The end of verse 9 says, Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Then you will know that that's referring to the day that Zerubbabel lays that capstone on the temple. On that day, when the temple is finished and, the, and Zerubbabel is laying that capstone on, then he will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. When Zechariah sees Zerubbabel set that upon him, then he will know this angel is truly given him a revelation from God. When the people observe that stone being set, they will all know that what Zechariah told them he heard from the word of God was the word of God. Now, historically, that day comes about three years after this night. So, it's near enough in the future that many people that hear Zechariah 
Kelly's words are still around to, to see it happen. Zerubbabel is there, Zachariah will be there, and many of the people will be there. They, they will have heard this vision shared originally, and then three years later, they will see this event come about. They'll see what God had promised come to completion, just like he promised. Here, God is saying that when that occurs, when that moment comes, they'll know beyond a shadow of doubt that the angel was revealing all these visions to Zechariah, and that was an angel sent by the Lord Almighty. Remember, Zechariah was seeing all kinds of things in these eight visions, and all of them from his perspective were future at the time he was seeing them. At the beginning, I mentioned several of them are still future from our perspective. Many of them point all the way to the millennial kingdom that has yet to come. Yet Zechariah and Zerubbabel are told that, that some of the things that he sees are close enough in time that they will witness them come to completion as predicted. And the fulfillment of those particular elements of prophecy demonstrate that all of the prophecies are valid. They are to have total confidence in, in the portions regarding Israel's far distant future because they've seen the present ones come about, or the, the near-term ones come about. And, and this is an important principle because God repeated this pattern with every genuine prophet. God at times gave prophecies of things that, that were far in the future to the date of some of his prophets. You know, many of the prophets received predictions about the coming of Christ, the Messiah, the first time. But that was centuries before he came. We look at it as past, but to them it was far in the future. There's still the second coming that is waiting to, to occur. Yet in every case, God gave some near-term prophecies as well that happened soon enough for the original recipients to know that this man that was telling them these things was truly a prophet of God. God had given the prophecies to him. Remember, God gave a test of a prophet. Back in Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22, God told the people when he gave Moses the law and he said there'll be prophets coming, he said, you may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In other words, God also warned them there's going to be false people coming along saying they are my voices, but they're not. How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And the answer God gives there is when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, this is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So in this verse where we say when that day comes, then on that day, God himself is essentially pointing back to this test that he gave back in Deuteronomy, saying, remember I gave you the test. Watch for what I say to come about. Three years, when this happens, you'll know. Now, he doesn't tell them it's three years, but we know historically it was three years. When this comes about, you will know, Zechariah is my prophet. And everything he is saying is coming from me. From our perspective, this test is why we believe every unfulfilled prophecy that we find still open in the Old Testament will come true exactly as God has predicted. God has validated every one of the prophets that we have recorded in our Bible. Now, there's many men that gave other kind of prophecies, and they, a few of them even wrote things down, but they were false prophets, and through the centuries, their 
things have been thrown away. The prophets we have in our Bible all had prophecies that came to pass within their immediate lifetime. Some of them have come past since then, and we can trust them. And we can know that every prophecy yet to come about will happen just as fully and accurately and completely as the ones that have currently been fulfilled. Because all of them have been demonstrated to be true prophets of God. From our perspective, we're simply waiting now for God to do what God has said he would do. He's given absolute assurance that these things will come about. Excursion, excursion, let's get back into the vision now because our angel is done with his excursion. That The heart of this fifth vision really is these words of assurance, but they're almost like an excursion, that, but they tie into what's happening. Good excursions always get you back to the main road, right? Well, these certainly do. Picking up at verse 11, we have the explanation of assurance. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on the left? And I answered the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. God loves Zachariah. He is still stuck on identifying these two olive trees. He is not letting go. He asks one more time what they are, or in other words, what do they represent? In fact, Zechariah repeats the, the question from verse 11 again in verse 12. So he's asked it twice in the form of verse 11, but now in verse 5 he asked it, now in verse 11, but then he repeats in verse 12. And in verse 12, we get a bit more insight in what he saw, what's really drawing his attention. We're finally told that these are olive trees, as I suggested at the beginning. Apparently, the two trees were beside the, the large bowl on the lampstand. Each of those trees had either a branch that was extended toward the bowl or, or large clusters of olives. Again, it's not quite clear what he saw, but, but from whatever was extended, they each had a, a, a pipe of some kind. Um, there was a, a golden pipe that carried olive oil directly from the trees into the large bowl. So you had the trees, you had this stem with a pipe feeding the large bowl with oil. In other words, what Zechariah is seeing here is a self-sustaining lamp system. Remember, it's a vision. It doesn't have to completely represent physical reality. So we don't have to get tied up in, well, if you have olives, you still have to press them to get the oil out. It's, it's a vision. So he's seeing a self-sustaining lamp system. You have two vibrant olive trees that have oil being produced that's automatically flowing into the large bowl that then continuously feeds the seven smaller bowls that are feeding each of their seven wicks so the flames will never go out. Forty-nine wicks will never go out. Remember, back to the tabernacle or the temple, one of the, the jobs of the priests was to refill the oil in that golden menorah, the lampstand there. They had to refill it daily so that the light would never go out. Well, Zachariah here sees a lamp system, a, a much brighter lamp system with 49 lights, 
And this one does not need any ongoing maintenance. It will never go out. The angel again responds to Zechariah's question with the exact same repeat of verse 5 when, when he asked, um, oh, I guess verse 4 when, when Zechariah asked, verse 5 the angel had said, do you not know what these are? Well, that's the answer the angel gives again in, in verse 13. Do you not know what these are? Zechariah responds the same way again. No, my Lord, I do not know. At last, then the angel finally gives him an answer to the question. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, that answer may not clear it up for us, but it would have been crystal clear for Zechariah. There were two leaders who were anointed for their office in Israel, the high priest and the king. Joshua was the high priest, and, and while Zerubbabel was not a king, he was the civil leader at that time. He was filling in as much as they could at that time the, that role. So Zechariah would have immediately understood that the angel's telling him that these trees represent Joshua and Zerubbabel. They're in the positions that they are in because the Lord has placed them there. They stand before him. This is why I think that the idea of the lamp system represents the testimony that Israel's have to the nation. Olive oil is used throughout the Old Testament to represent God's power. God has even stated that it is his power through his spirit that, that is guaranteeing the completion of the work here in, in the excursion that, that we just went through. So if we put that all together, God's showing that he has placed Joshua and Zerubbabel in their position so that his power, his power can flow through them, ensuring that the lamp of Israel will burn bright in a perpetual manner. Notice, too, God is referred to as the Lord of the whole earth. That means he is the master of every circumstance that Joshua and Zerubbabel might face. Not just the master placing them there, he's master of everything. There's nothing that they are by extension that the people can encounter that is outside God's sovereign control. That means if God has promised that they will complete the task that he set before them, they will complete it. Nothing can hinder them. What a promise. But what a God. The explanation of assurance that's what we see here in the final verses this evening. Zechariah has been shown another fantastic vision, this vision of assurance. We've examined the vision, the words, and the explanation of assurance. We, we've thought about what this assurance would mean for Zechariah and Zerubbabel and the people. They're told that their project will complete. It cannot fail. That assurance would certainly energize and strengthen all of their efforts. But what does this vision mean for us? What can we learn from it? Well, the answer for us comes from the fact that, that God is unchanging. God is still the Lord of the whole earth. And we should recognize from what we see in this vision that the larger principle is that God will complete what he has promised by the power of his spirit. God will complete what he has promised by the power of his spirit. I asked at the outset to think about a large project. And projects get put aside, as I said, because we're uncertain if they will ever be finished, if the completion will ever arrive. We get discouraged, we get distracted, and, and we eventually give up and move on to something else. 
Yet any project that has God undergirding it with the promise of its completion is never in doubt. God will complete what he has promised by the power of his spirit. So as we finish up this evening, I want to quickly consider just two projects. I selected two projects that God has promised that he will complete through the power of his spirit. Remember, if God has promised it, what will happen? It will be done. Are we confident in that? If God has promised it, it will be done by the power of his spirit. So first, we can think about the project of building his church. Our Savior personally said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Building the church of Christ, the, the, the body of New Testament believers, that, that's a project. A project that, that Peter even likens to building a, a spiritual church, a spiritual building. It's a project that faces many challenges. I mean, after all, Satan himself is aligned against it, right? Satan wants to stop the project of building the church. Yet, can that project fail? I see two heads, no. Anybody else? Can that project fail? No! God has said, I will build my church. Christ sent the power of his spirit to do it. The church will be built. We have a promise, a promise made by God, a promise that's empowered by his spirit. Now, we have to be careful. We, we know we have no direct promise that God will build First Baptist Church of Sterling Heights. We, we don't know that this particular local church will fail. Yet, if this church does fail, even that will not prevent the project of Christ's church from completing. Well, I would submit that knowing that, knowing that the building of Christ's church cannot fail, that should affect our energies. We should put all the energy we have into this project because we know this project is empowered by God's Spirit. We know that as long as First Baptist Church is useful to the larger project of building his church, even this local church will not fail. Do we believe it? God has promised it. Do we believe that it is worth spending our lives for the project that cannot fail? Friends, we spend a lot of time on energy on projects that ultimately fail. My wife and I are looking to rebuild our deck next year. That project will fail. I hope it doesn't fail as long as till long, we're long gone from the house. I hope, you know, we rebuild the deck and, and it lasts for a good long time, but it will fail. Decades down the road, that deck will not stand no matter how well it's constructed. Ultimately, we are putting effort into a project that cannot last. Effort put into building the church of Christ will not fail. We have assured success. God will complete what he has promised by the power of his spirit. Now, that's one project I want us to think about. Let's think about a more personal project. The project that each one of us who knows Christ has started. Being transformed to be like our Savior. Remember again, God has promised us in Philippians 1.6, 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but there are times when I examine my life, I get discouraged. I, I, I cannot believe when I examine myself that I'm still struggling with some of the very same sins I'm struggling with for years now. I mean, I accepted Christ years ago. And not only am I struggling with some of the same sins when I examine my life, I still fall for the same lies that Satan's been using against me for years, committing the same sins. The thought that whispers itself in my mind is that I should just give up. Do you know that thought? But then I remember, why would I give up on something that I know with absolute certainty will not fail. I will be like Christ because the Spirit of God is going to make me like Christ. I cannot fail to be transformed, to be like Christ. It's time to get back to work and strive again against the sin because I know that God is working in me to will and to do His good pleasure. I have assured success. God will complete what he has promised by the power of his spirit. Say that with me. God will complete what he has promised by the power of his spirit. Believe it. Live it. We have assured success. Father, we thank you for the time we could spend in your word. We thank you for the assurance that you gave Zerubbabel through Zechariah here. And Father, we thank you that we can learn from that vision how we too can have assurance of things you have promised. Father, may we live that out as we go forth from here tonight, magnifying Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.